Welcome to Zestful Aging, where I interview inspiring, fascinating women who are navigating aging with class and sass. I'm your host, Nicole Christina. Hey everyone, I am so grateful for all of the downloads, and I'd love a rating on iTunes and a comment. And please subscribe. It helps the show's rating so other people can find it and learn how to age well. And if you are loving the podcast, why not check out the companion online course, Zestful Aging, Simple and Sustainable Habits for Health and Longevity. You can access it through my website, NicoleChristina.com forward slash Zestful Aging. It's based on the Harvard Study of Adult Development, and I'm really proud of how it's turned out. Well, I've got my coffee in my hand and my trusty dog Sparky beside me, so let's begin. Diane Weiner is a full-time director of the Syracuse University Disability Cultural Center. She's an educator, social worker, advocate, singer, bassist and artist, among other roles. She has long-standing commitments to mindfulness, interfaith, and secular contemplation and humanism, and she has published widely on issues related to social justice. And I'm really excited to have her today because we're going to talk about her just-published book of poetry called The Golem. Hi, Diane. Hi there. How are you, Nicole? I am well. I uh, It's a beautiful day today, and I'm looking forward to uh, getting out and walking with my dog uh, after we talk. But I'm really excited to, to hear about this, this book. Can you tell me a little bit about what a golem is? Sure, sure. And it's uh, <clears throat> the book is actually called The Golem Verses, and I have to thank my Aunt Joan for that because she, too, was a poet. And we talked about the book as it was unfolding. And we were talking about how people will want to know what a golem is. And so then a close friend of mine, um, who is also a poet, Elizabeth Sokolow, she and I uh, created some language, which we wound up using in the book, the uh, publishers and I. And also this was put into an anthology um, wherein some of the poems appeared prior to the book's publication. So it's not that long. I could read it, or I could just give you my synopsis. What would you prefer? What would you prefer? Oh, I'll read it. Why not? <laughs> okay. So this is a this is a quick and dirty introduction to what the heck is a golem. And I don't know if we're rated E for everyone, or if I'm supposed to go off script in grid in gridland here. But I uh, I can some of the poems and some of the languages decidedly not E for everyone. But this okay. part this part is okay. So a note to the reader. In some facets of Jewish culture, golems are among the fantastical figures that influence our sense of reality. They are, in a way, lifeless and immortal, dead but not zombies. In order for them to become animated, spiritual power words might be written across their sometimes muddy, possibly wooden foreheads. At other times, mystical invocations are placed within their mouths. As releasers of cosmic time, space and imagination, they can visit you, make things go bump in the night, or disappear from your drawers and then reappear in your closets. Golems can take you anywhere, make you think nearly anything. They might even have the power to put you in touch with the sensation of being inside a black hole, although they were invented, or if you prefer, noticed, before we knew about black holes. Golems have been among us since the Middle Ages. In these poems, I welcome a golem as a friend, traveling with her wherever she takes me, terrifying, unfamiliar, and yes, as familiar as vegetables. While golems have at times been depicted as limited in speech or as voiceless, and even as unintelligent, the golem in these poems is quite actively an addresser, an addressee, and a subject. If she is disabled, which is debatable, her disablement is an accepted, integrated part of her wild identities and honest labors. Wow, 
Wow. So I'm trying to imagine this. And I, I guess the first question I have for you is when did you learn about golems? So when I was a kid, I knew about the golem as a concept in Jewish mysticism. And people gendered female are not supposed to, in Orthodox Jewish context, study Jewish mysticism. I was raised Orthodox. Uh, I didn't know until I was older that I actually didn't really believe in binary gender. And so technically, it would have been even more complicated for me at the time if I had known that. But in any case, growing up is what was called a girl, and I am still many ways perceived as a woman, and I do identify as a woman at times, but mostly I identify as Diane, who is gender nonconforming. But as a girl and in yeshiva, I was not allowed to study Jewish mysticism because I was born in the wrong gender identity, and boys old enough past bar mitzvah would learn even more about mystical things because they were purportedly more uh, oriented towards thinking in those ways. So the misogyny of this distressed me and my early feminist experiences were certainly before I was what would have been bat mitzvah if I had not been orthodox because orthodox girls are not bat mitzvah either. So I did not know that. So I didn't. Yes, I I did not have. Yes. So so how did the decision get made for you to attend Yeshiva University? Well, I went to Yeshiva University when I did my master's degree. I'm talking about the uh, Yeshiva of childhood. This the Uh my. so, So without telling you my whole life story, I'm from Brooklyn. Represent. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I grew up in Brooklyn. My parents were public school teachers. I'm an only child. Uh, and I went to elementary school at Yeshiva until I was the middle of, in the middle of fifth grade. And in the middle of fifth grade, I basically uh, begged my parents to let me transfer to a public school. And without going on and on, my dad had all along been concerned about all of this because of his politics but my mother, as it's known, um, prevailed. And so I was sent to this Jewish um, educational context. Now, I'm not suggesting in any way that yeshiva has nothing important to offer many, many hundreds of people around the country and internationally. My experience of yeshiva, however, was rather a mixed bag because I was a little queer kid whose gender wasn't quite like everybody else's in the categories that we understood at the time in the 70s and before then. So I wound up begging to be transferred to uh, public school. And I was uh, listened to by my parents, thank goodness. And so I went to public school and I went to public school ever since. And well into my adulthood, you know, I learned more and more about golems. But uh, when I was little, I didn't know about them. So when I was a little bit older, um, you know, I was really sort of being what would have been considered or would have been considered uh, disobedient by being interested in Jewish mysticism as a girl. So I started reading about this stuff and I learned about this notion and then later learned more, as I just indicated. So the the rudimentary answer is that the golem is a figure who's been with me always. And one of the bizarre things about this, which is kind of uh, magical and um, hard to even explain with words. Ironically, I was telling someone earlier, I think poems are things expressed around affect that are actually exceeding of language, but you're using language to do it. Uh, so the, the golem is a figure I've probably known all my life. And so in some of the poems themselves, there's an implication that's quite explicit uh, in some cases that she and I have always known each other and that she was there when this happened to me and she was there when that happened. And of course, the poems are abstractions. They're not really about me. They're about the ideas and the feelings. So it doesn't matter if people don't know that in many ways this book is a memoir. It, I don't care if people know that. In fact, in many ways, it's relevant. So I want people to have their own experience of the language and the feeling and the mystical quality of the text, uh, having no knowledge of me because it doesn't matter. And most of, yes. Oh, I was just trying to think about the process of writing poetry and you describe it as almost beyond words and there's of course you're writing about 
this mystical uh, in the mystical realm. How does one prepare for that? I, I I'm trying to imagine. You know, when I sit down and I write a blog, I just sit down and write it, and it doesn't necessarily matter. You know, and it doesn't necessarily matter. You know what? Um, you know, I, I just sit down. It's 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 mostly probably intellectual. How do you what What's the process like for you sitting down and writing this poem, which is quite different as you describe it? So the golem in the very early understandings of them are beings who were meant to protect and who were in company with people who were being oppressed, namely the Jewish people of Eastern Europe, who were oftentimes facing later pogroms and attack and, you know, the the specter of being dismantled as communities. And so the golems were manifested in order to be guardians against harm. Mm -hmm. And I think it's uh, what happened is I I uh, I'm going to say this in the recording. and The whole world will now potentially know this, which is fine with me. I actually think that I was um, greeted by a golem in a spiritual way, in a dream. And I awakened thinking, what the heck was that? Oh, my goodness. All the years of my life, my beliefs and cultural memory and the continuity of experience. And yes, it was a dream, but it felt very um, deep to me and seemed like a, a visitation of a kind. And so I wrote a poem immediately from no uh, real, no, really, there was no intention. I just wrote down how I felt. And it, I looked down at the text that I had created, and clearly I had written a poem. And I've been writing poems since I was seven, but I didn't expect this to happen. And so I wrote it, and then a very close friend of mine said, keep going. And I kept going. And then I wrote three. And I learned about uh, this contest, which I then entered, which ironically, the benefit of having not won it is that all the poems I wrote after I entered the contest, because I wrote a whole bunch more, they all wound up together in the same manuscript, which was then longer. And so that was able to be published in its totality as mm -hmm. the Golem Verses. Um, so what happened with these poems was different from anything else that ever happened with any other poems I've ever written, actually. What, is it a, was it a therapeutic process to write these poems? I actually will take it further than that and say that I think in many respects, my friendships, my family members, my very, very big cat, and these poems have in many respects saved my life. And that I have, of course, saved my own life repeatedly in, in my emotional realms, but that these poems and their catharsis and their abstraction and their um, work and labor have made it possible for me to move through some things that were not very easy, to put it politely. I would be so grateful if you would read us from your book of poems. Is that something you would do? Absolutely. Sure, I would be honored. And there is an image on the cover of the book of a person in a swing hanging from a beanstalk. So the beanstalk becomes the device that from which the swing is suspended. And in the sky are all of these clouds and uh, percolating through the image is a sequence of serotonin molecules mm. and the illustrations by Lucy Lou Wales. So people ask me what on earth, right? So this poem, I don't think it explains something, but I think there's some referencing for why the cover became. So here's verse 15 from the Golem Verses. Let's go for a ride. I'll speak the truth to you nothing else, in broken strings, wilted beet greens, and the smell of garlic rushing through the house with its own children. We'll take your sloping roller coaster, though it and I cannot soothe divergent insomnias or stop that loud banging noise, achy wheel rims, 
a rusty timing belt mine with its fish eyes never resting. I'll watch the marinara sunset, one of your unmitigated joys, before grief became ancillary and was still the ground. Golem, you say all this to me, but not just because you can, and I let you. You sense the beanstalk that I nearly climbed away from here, but we both know it's not tall enough to get that far. We know I'll stay. You know, it's interesting when you started reading, your voice changed. Mm-hmm. It's like almost a, um, a prayer. Yes, thank you. And uh, in fact, the word golem appears once in the Jewish Bible in what is called the Old Testament in the Christian tradition. And it's in one of the Psalms, which of course are verses. And golem literally is translated as embryo, as unformed being. And I am not a religious Jew, but I am a cultural Jew. I actually identify as a pantheist, which is another topic, of course. And that is also all through these poems, that ideas, set of ideas or beliefs that everything has the potential to be perceived as sentient, but we don't really know what other beings think or feel about themselves, of course. I can barely explain how I feel, let alone other people, let alone creatures and plants and rocks and mountains, but in any case, I believe they're all significant and interrelated and that they're all alive in a way that needs to be respected and honored. And so the golem in the Jewish tradition in many ways is like Adam. And when God created Adam, he breathed life into him. And he did that by forming him out of the clay of the earth, out of the mud. And so a golem is formed from mud and the word uh, truth is often written in Hebrew, the word emet, and the aleph mem, uh, beginning of emet, tet, on the, on the forehead. The aleph um, is erased after the golem has been alive, if you want to call it that. And when that's erased, it says met rather than emet. So emet means truth. And when you erase the aleph, it says met, which means death. And then the golem goes back into the earth and it's just a pile of mud or soot or whatever metaphor or reference one prefers or understands. And um, I think it's a tet. If I'm if I'm I'm going to say the wrong letter in Hebrew, I'll get in trouble with my family. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> you can delete that part. So Aleph Mem Tet, and I think that the golem uh, becomes and does not become in a way that suggests that people have the capacity to create life um, in this creature, as it were. The idea has been levied by some scholars that Mary Shelley's Frankenstein owes some of its metaphorization to the golem narrative in Jewish mysticism. The, the monster, not the, uh, not the doctor, of course. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, of course, who's the monster and who's the doctor after all? And so the golem, who's my friend, who is female and who is certainly a companion of mine, is not a monster. Uh, And part of what the book addresses is um, the ways in which we understand monstrosity in mainstream society. And it's not an intellectual exercise. So like when I read an academic essay or a book chapter alone or with colleagues or with one other author, whatever the case may be, or when I wrote my dissertation or any number of other things I've written, Writing poetry is a completely different process. I what don't about know... singing and playing <laughs> the bass? <laughs> well, what about them? I, I guess I um, will probably never play the bass in public, uh, much to the chagrin of the people who want me to do so. But I, I play the bass alone to the cat and to some of my friends. <laughs> um, but I do sing in public, and I've been singing a very long time. And I think that writing... Uh, poems which are not rhyming typically but are more free verse and abstracted as I said earlier and singing have more in common with bass playing than writing academic articles. I think singing and music and poetry are from the same realm or cut from the same cloth. So do you experience the presence of your golem when you're singing? 
I don't know that I would put it that way. I think I experienced the presence of um, an understanding that everything in the world is not within my control, that I'm trying to be in the middle of the moment I'm having, that I'm engaged in a mindful um, immediacy and that I want to be present energetically for people I care about and love and uh, the, the adjacencies of my cat and other beings in my presence, but I wouldn't exactly put it that way. But, but the poems essentially showed up. They appeared through me, um, not that different from, I guess, dare I say, reading tarot cards. I think I was a catalyst for this language to come through me, that in a way I've been writing these poems all my life but didn't know it, um, and that they all appeared at age 52. Um, and I wrote 61 of them between the middle of October and the end of November. Mm-hmm. And I wrote 45 more between the beginning of December and the middle of March. So did I wrote you, in the middle of March. So did, I wrote, you, yeah. did you have to, because a director of a, a major program, and I'm wondering, how did you balance really needing to birth these poems with all of the academic responsibilities you have? I mostly wrote them very early in the morning. They appear, she appeared to me in the morning. There you are. <laughs> she appeared to me early in the morning before I even got to the office. And sometimes she visited me, very thoughtful of her, when I was done with the day, often very late at night. And I wrote them all on a mobile device. None of them were handwritten, also unlike me in some respects. I wrote them on a mobile device and most of them were barely edited. There are several of them that have references to prior poems. There's one poem that was a refiguration of a poem from the past, and another poem that was also kind of an updated, edited manuscript version of a poem from the past. But with those few exceptions, every single one of these was written exactly during now, during this recent time period, in fewer than five months. Do you expect that this is going to continue and that you'll can, it's like you're downloading, right? (laughs) You're just the scribe. Yes, that's right. I'm the scribe. It's like Johnny Mnemonic, you know, with Keanu Reeves, you know, there's that chip in the back of your head and they scan you, you know, Uh, you know, you have to, or in the matrix, which also has him, I guess, you know, you can download the data and then you share it with others or you learn new things that way. And it's alarming, but it's a funny idea too. I, th- I think that I will write more poems that are influenced by how she's helped me heal. I don't know whether or not I'll write more poems about my relationship and friendship with her. And I was sad because I thought maybe this was over and where is she? But I realized that that's not true. And I don't want people to think I'm having a mental health crisis uh, because I'm imagining a friend as one does when their child uh, has an imaginary friend. One of the reviewers referred to the golem as part imaginary friend. Um, and that's that's an interesting idea and I understand it and feel it's a beautiful reference and I agree with it in fact. So she's not imaginary in a sense though. She's uh, genuinely uh, a presence in my imagination and um, I believe in some spiritual way. So we'll see what happens. I don't really know yet. I know I've written other poems um, since this happened, mm-hmm. and I and I have written poems certainly for many years before this happened, and it does feel like something happened. Something mm-hmm. happened to me, mm-hmm. and I'm sharing that now with other people. And when it finally published, what was that experience like seeing these words in a book? Uh, I burst into tears. Oh. I, I, I really did, and I think that the indescribable honor of seeing this happen and the joy of sharing these with other people, which is what I think art is about, uh, is a huge um, influence in my happiness in this moment. And I honor my mother and her um, not wonderful health um, in the text. And I honor my friends and family, and I mean chosen family, as well as people with whom I have so-called sanguineous bonds. So they're not just my blood relatives, but my family writ large Mm -hmm. and the family of the earth. And I also dedicated the book in loving memory of my Aunt Joan, who died in February 
um, and who knew I was writing these but never saw it in print and will not in her physical life see it in print, alas. Hello, Zestful Agers. A short intermission to thank you for the incredible amount of downloads. I love creating this podcast, and it's so satisfying to know that you are enjoying it too. Creating and hosting Zestful Aging has been a blast, but it does require a lot of time and resources to deliver a high-quality interview to you every week. So I've signed up with Patreon, which is kind of like Kickstarter, but for ongoing artistic projects. Unlike Kickstarter, the donations are recurrent and the amount is usually smaller. When you become a patron of Zestful Aging, you will receive special benefits like behind-the-scenes info, a place to communicate with other listeners as well as other patron-only bonuses. These funds will be used to make equipment upgrades, particularly for mobile interviewing, and to travel to interview guests like to New York City to interview participants in the Diversity Fashion Show. I also need to hire a professional editor. So please go to patreon.com forward slash zestful aging and make a small but vital donation. Thank you for contributing to the ongoing success of zestful aging, and I can't wait to bring you more juicy, inspiring interviews. Now back to the show. You know, it's obvious just speaking to you for just a few minutes and also your reputation um, in the community that you're extremely passionate about social justice issues and I know you've done a lot of work on that and I guess I'm, I, I really wonder this um, for a lot of folks who are dedicated to social justice issues how are you getting by these days? Well it's been a demoralizing and um, trenchant set of trouble we're in here And I think that one of the things I want to do is participate collaboratively in creating conversational spaces like the one you've honored me by creating with me collaboratively today, Nicole, so thank you, where people um, don't talk about this cerebral appeal to authenticity, but they actually practice it. And so there's a commitment to a genuine sharing and deep listening, as my, one of my teachers, Thich Nhat Hanh, would put it, and that there's a commitment to really being um, present and centered, even in rage. I think that uh, having lived through the Reagan administration and both Bush administrations, I will say that number 45 <laughs> is um, the scariest president of my lifetime, uh, and I, I mean, I guess we could go back to worrying about Johnson, but I was very little when that happened, although I do remember hearing Hey Jude on the radio, and I also remember hearing the moon landing from my crib when I was not about to be three years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I was born in, during the war in Vietnam in 1966, and I think that this moment in many ways feels like we've gone quite backwards, which I know is not an original thought, if any thoughts are. So what I do is I try to be in good company, as I've used that term several times, with people and try to really sit and and listen and speak with um, candor. And I will curse now, but not the F word. (laughs) And I'll tell you, I've been saying that since my 40s, my bullshit meter has really disintegrated. But now that I'm over 50, it's gone. It's done. I have no more bullshit meter. It's broken off. I have a physical uh, signal for this that I could show with my right hand sort of popping the bullshit meter into the air. And the bullshit meter is uh, no longer present. I have no time for bullshit. And we really have to be careful with um, knowing how to trust our instincts about whether someone has our best interest at heart. 
And I think that this moment in history is extremely significant. I resisted certain language for a long time in description of the president. I didn't want to be complicit with harsh language that I thought was over the top. But I have uh, moved away from being afraid of that. I do think he's a fascist. Um, I have referenced fascism explicitly in the poetry as part of my way of coping. I reference eugenics in the poetry. If you want me to read that poem to you, I will. And I'll tell you, I think that putting children into cages and separating families from each other is egregious beyond measure. And we have to be near each other in proximity and honesty to bear witness to the horrors that we're facing in this country and internationally right now. And of course, this is not just about the United States and never has been. And I think globally, this planet is um, facing a great deal of, I'll say in Yiddish, suras, which literally means grief or distress. How do you, I, I know we're getting a little far afield, but I'm just so curious and, and just trying to imagine, you know, your experience in the classroom. Um, how do you, you know, with mindfulness and patience and all the things, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh would, would talk about, how do you confront a student who uh, is not, we'll say, like-minded? So I, as the director of the Disability Cultural Center, I have a full-time appointment at the university in an administrative capacity, and I do a lot of work uh, across the campus and beyond around diversity, equity, accessibility, inclusion. And the students who take courses with me when I teach, usually in the spring semester, I was full-time faculty at a prior institution, and I'm part-time faculty now. And as a part-time faculty member, I have a different role. And so the students know me largely as an administrator, and then some of them know me only as a professor. So if they know me as an administrator, they already know that I'm not going to be shy to disagree with politeness and assertiveness with them. And if they don't know me as an administrator or reputationally, and they only meet me for, for the first time as a professor of a seminar they're taking with me, an undergraduate seminar, then they'll be perhaps hopefully uh, surprised <laughs> to learn that I'm not afraid to listen to an array of opinions expressed in different ways, including not verbally and not with sound, in lots of different nonverbal ways, and certainly people who type to communicate and who use sign language to communicate and all kinds of other modes of expression. And so I have no <clears throat> issue with that. I will tell you, and now we're saying this on a podcast, <clears throat> I've had some people, uh, I would say, ding me on my evaluations because they were concerned uh, and perhaps unhappy that I was so explicit in my refusal to be um, moving away, uh, my refusal to uh, ignore what I think is called extreme relativism. Mm. So I don't buy it. I've actually written about this, uh, which is a whole other topic, but I don't think extreme relativism is worth its salt. There, it doesn't work. Everyone is not entitled to their opinion. Yes, we have the First Amendment. I will die. My, my dying breath will be taken defending it. We have the First Amendment and we must honor it. But that doesn't mean I have to like what you said. And that doesn't mean that you get to say horrible, violent things. And it doesn't mean you get to behave in horrible, violent ways that ultimately do affect other people, including yourself. And I don't do this in a way that's patronizing. And hopefully it's not self-righteous, although I've been accused of that. I try to really ask, what does it mean to you to hold a belief that has the potential to harm other lives in these mm -hmm. ways. And what does it mean to you for me to ask you that? So I don't attack people. I don't, I don't shame anyone. They don't have to agree with me. Their grades are not reflective of their agreeing with me. That's unethical. I would never do that. That students have all kinds of opinions that are anathema to me. And I will still give uh, a grade or they will have earned the grade, frankly, that reflects their capacity to make an argument that's assertive and meaningful. But that doesn't mean I'm not going to write in the margin. Actually, this perspective has the potential to possibly da-da-da-da. What do you think about this? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I want to talk about this with you. Can we have some coffee in my office and talk for a minute? And, you know, and I know there are power dynamics. 
however much one tries to flatten the hierarchy and claim it's egalitarian, I'm evaluating them. I'm much older than they are. I'm a professor. I'm an administrator. I report to the to a number of people in our higher administration at the university in various roles that I have. I don't think that can be denied, but I'm also still just a person. And so how do those simultaneous truths, as I like to put it, exist in the classroom? A long time ago, I wrote an article with a colleague and and then we expanded it and there was a quartet of people that wound up writing this article about political ideology in the classroom. When I taught at Binghamton University, I had many students who were very conservative and were worried that they were going to be silenced by the largely um, liberal-leaning social work students in the class. And I made very clear that no one would be silenced and that discriminating against police officers or stereotyping them or discriminating against people who are members of the Christian community that was oriented towards what's sometimes called evangelical belief and that discriminating against anyone who might have voted for someone who I didn't necessarily vote for, (laughs) that any kind of discrimination was still discrimination, Mm -hmm. but that we had to figure out ways to really talk about this. But that doesn't mean I believe in extreme relativism because I don't. So how is someone supposed to become a social worker if they won't treat people who are gay? How are supposed to so how is someone supposed to be a social worker if they actually think that people of multiple ethnicities and racial identities are not equal to each other? Those beliefs are absurdist, but you're entitled to your opinion. And and so when you have, you know, this mix of people we'll say in your classrooms at the university in the world how does it feel then to open yourself up with the golem verses and everybody is seeing Mm -hmm. this deeply personal um you know side of you they're seeing your innermost uh thoughts and experiences and I'm just wondering, given what we've just talked about, what what did it feel like to know that you were exposed? So I have to say that part of what's occurred um, hasn't occurred to me before in my life, although I have been threatened and certainly attacked and have had a number of bias-related incidents occur within which I was the survivor because I don't want to call myself a victim. And I think that this feels like a different instantiation of me just being who I am. And if that puts me at risk for people who might be not um, happy with that perspective or dispreferring of the kind of candor that I bring to conversation without arrogance, I hope, then that's their prerogative. But if they in any way find a way to try to harm me, I will certainly be careful to ask for support and help in protecting myself and in protecting myself the way that I do. So I think that, um, you know, having been someone who at 20 had my life threatened because of my belief that um, there should be a binational state in what is now called Israel and that Arab Palestinians Uh, Jews together in that realm had the right to coexist, that people threatened to kill me for believing that when I was in college, um, I think shored up some idea that I knew that my life was not welcomed in every environment, even though I look and pass as a white person. um, And certainly I will never know physically and emotionally and in any real deep way on an ongoing basis what it's like to be threatened by racial violence as myself. Um, And again, with proximity and in company with people whom I love who are folks of color, I have worked on matters of racial justice and what I hope is good allyship. Uh, But my life will never be threatened the way I look and the way I'm embodied and the way it might be if, or could more likely be or would more likely be if I moved through the world with a different embodiment. And with a different level of melanin, and <laughs> and, uh, the, and and having the golem verses uh, out now, I mean, there's a way in which everyone can see your insides. Is that is that make you feel vulnerable, or do you feel okay with that? 
I'm already vulnerable. That's what I'm trying to say. I see. Okay. So, so, you know, I've, uh, I've been involved with, uh, you know, I was involved with the anti-apartheid movement and people threatened us. You know, we, I was involved with multiple queer rights groups years ago. I was an act up. I mean, I've been involved with work in social justice, which most people don't even know about because I don't sit around reciting my social justice resume all day long because that's Mm -hmm. obnoxious and boring. But the people who know me and the people who ask me and the people who've interviewed me certainly in the past and my students to some degree and certainly some colleagues and people very close to me know about these things. And so I've been vulnerable all my life in a way, but I don't feel... Um, it's not the same kind of vulnerability as the emotional vulnerability of the words as expressed in this work, but right. I, I'm not afraid. I really am not. I see. I see. Do we have time for another poem? Sure. I'd, I'd be delighted. Do you want uh, sweet or salty? Oh, um, I'd like one sweet and one salty, please. All right. Number five, verse five. Golem joins me. We ask questions. What spatial, tactile, and linguistic messages could be used to assure that everyone has access to the news about colliding neutron stars without sight or sound? Astrophysicists explain the vibrations, and yes, I'm relieved, as I was with learning of solar eclipses, multi-sensory lives. There's even an app. A lattice, my hands, depicts shadowed crescents on cement. The fascism and eugenics so prevalent in the news are again refused. I remain conflicted about astronomy, considering people without food or shelter. The discovery of the origins of the universe, nevertheless, is unmistakably profound. If gold and platinum shatter in fragments careening off colliding neutron stars, those bits swallowed up by the black holes left behind are likely inhabited by fairies. Devonian remains of mollusks might have lithic gold and platinum traces for all we know. But the poetics of the first question seem lost, Golem thinks, quietly beside me in the woods. We are, after all, talking about the music of the stars. Wow. Wow. You know, it seems to me that, and I don't know if this is just me, but they're so rich that I would have to read them again and again, I think, mm-hmm. to really, mm-hmm. to really get everything, to mm-hmm. really, um, I don't know, there's there's so much there. Yeah, yeah. Some of them are short and they're still like dense. They're like mm-hmm. little pockets of oomph. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually have a reference in the 100th poem that's that's about the golem deflecting the 100th solar plexus punch because what i felt is that i was being punched through my solar plexus but not violently with like this energy and that i that each poem that became um that manifested as a as the golem herself manifests um i think that each of these poems has has this thick um density and that yes some people will be like what on earth are you kidding me i'm not reading this and some people will be like wow and who knows some people may read them over and over and some people may have no interest and that's the beauty of how art works because it's in a way they're not mine anymore um if they ever were they belong to whomever engages with them and my intentions while relevant are not as important to me as the experience of the reader and have you, maybe this is a, an obvious question, but is part of this that, have you expressed gratitude to the golem for coming forth and bringing oh, yeah. this image? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, there are poems with me explicitly thanking the golem and speaking in dialogue with the golem and expressing 
my sadness that this, what will we do when we're not in this relationship like this right now? Will I see you again? Of course I will, but what if I don't? There, there are poems in which I say, now that I've found you, I'm afraid you'll leave, which of course references all kinds of other things from my past and so many other people's experiences of loss. Um, would you, I, would yes. you mind reading one of those? That sounds really sure. interesting. Yeah. And I was going to read you a sort of funny one, sort okay. of. But uh, <laughs> let's see if I can find... Verse 16, I'm afraid now that I found you again, you'll leave. Maybe I should have thought you to myself. I don't believe in keeping and going. I collect books that I have no time to read. Imagining you within this world that can be no one else's. Why tell anyone? But I want to share what cannot be held. Like a, it's like a love poem. Yeah, yeah. So Ona Gritz, I referenced earlier her beautiful review. I have wonderful reviews here, advanced praise for the book from friends and colleagues. And Georgia Popoff, Ona Gritz, and Jackie Warren Moore, all fine women poets, all certainly zestfully aging. <laughs> um, all of them, all three of them wrote these beautiful um descriptions of the text for the back of the book and one of the things that that Ona said uh, is at its heart is Golem part advisor part imaginary playmate possible lover a mythical figure uh, and then she quotes me who believes she can be anything and then she continues and is playful wise and always kind and I love that sentence and and Jackie Warren Moore, who, who lives in Syracuse, um, owners in Philly, said, I never knew a golem until Diane introduced me. Ha! And then she describes, you know, what it means to have met the golem in very beautiful, um, very gracious language. And Georgia, who another fine poet also in Syracuse, um, says that... Um, these poems present an interior dialogue in which the golem is more than symbol or legend, but trusted companion and guiding, grounding force. So um, there are people who will read these poems and that will ring true for them. Um, and there are other folks who will be affected in other ways, I hope. This one I'll read to you now is very much a reference to my cultural identity on Christmas Eve. This is uh, Golem Twilight 11. If you could save the world, Golem, how would you proceed? I can, you tell me. I can and I will. You rise up gathered, so serious, your fists way above your head. Clearly, you've been considering this mission for some time, maybe even waiting for me to ask. You say, I have to begin by shutting all the sensory doors. I must open them anew. Spit fire fountains after breathing for years underground in the last sharp cave I will have dug for myself. Listening to the plants, animals, rocks, seas, hills, their choices delivered at once as they desire non-words. And having prioritized them, including bacteria and protozoa soothed, turn then to the people and their virus cousins who remain clinging cliffside after the melted ice caps have dissolved fully. Promises kept in devoted shapeshifts, plates tectonic no more. There will be boundless, noiseless hastening. Volcanism through brandished ores will anew create landforms and foods equitably under sun number three. Then you laugh so loud, ask how much longer we have to play this silly game before getting Chinese food on Christmas. No heresy protest, merely an outsider party. So come on, you stare at me. Let's unfurl the scarves without messiahs and enjoy a few hot noodles. And go to the movies. That's right. You got it. <laughs> Hell to the yes. Listen, I, uh, I had a, a grandmother in Brooklyn. I've spent some time there. You're probably my cousin. 
<laughs> well, she did come on the boat from Poland. Uh, All right, then. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So where can people find this book, Diane? It is available through Nine Mile Press, okay. which is ninemile.org. Ninemile.org. And it is also available through Amazon. And soon it will be available in an electronic screen reader-friendly format as well. Mm-hmm. Plus, it will be available soon at the Syracuse University Bookstore. Lovely. And um, is there anything you'd like to say as we wrap up? Any I last just, words? I just want to express my gratitude to you for this wonderful conversation. I want to encourage people to find ways to express themselves and to tell the truth of their experience to themselves first, and then if they wish, to share it with others. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, indeed. Well, that is, uh, I'm just feel like I've uh, really experienced something special speaking with you uh, this evening, Diane, and, and your poetry is just, it's so rich and it's so succulent. If that's a, a, wow. a word uh, sure. that makes sure. sense, um, it, it's it's just really been an honor, and I so appreciate you taking the time. Well, I'm delighted and honored to have been invited and welcomed into your presence and into the realm of the show that you create for this podcast, Nicole. And I wish you every happiness, um, mm-hmm. despite the political context mm-hmm. in which we find ourselves, mm-hmm. because I believe in the simultaneous truths that might seem paradoxical, but are still possible. Mm -hmm. So thank you very much. Amen on that. Thank you so much for joining us on Zestful Aging. I love to hear from my listeners. So send me an email at NicoleChristina.com and tell me what you'd like to hear more about. I would also greatly appreciate if you could hop on iTunes and rate the show. Ratings help other people find the podcast so I can share all these good juicy interviews with others. I would also invite you to become a patron of the Zestful Aging Podcast. Hop on over to patreon.com forward slash Zestful Aging and consider making a small donation. You will be eligible you will be eligible for insider-only information, and it'll help you feel good knowing that you're contributing to the Zestful Aging podcast. I'll look forward to sharing more juicy interviews next week on Zestful Aging.